He made a choice to try to drive change, innovation at NPR, and he has the scars to prove it. I lost friends. I really did. There are people to this day who hate my guts and a few people whose guts I kind of hate. And that's okay. What he accomplished is more than okay. It's pretty remarkable. Adam Davidson dreamt up and built one of the most successful podcasts ever. I asked him to share that story about trying to drive innovation inside a big company and to talk about his new book, The Passion Economy, where he claims this. If you're not living your passion, you're going to find you're not making money either. This is the class your business school didn't offer. It's the training your employer still hasn't provided. How do leaders like us get people to do what we need them to do so we can grow our results and live the life we desire? That's the question, right? This podcast contains the answers. I am Russ Hill, and welcome to Culture Hacks. I want to I want to start uh, the show with a quote. I, I, in fact, I've heard you say this before, Adam. You said when you graduated from college, you faced a choice. I could make money, you said, and be miserable, or I could follow my passion and be broke. <laughs> I've also heard you say that that choice doesn't necessarily present itself anymore. Explain what you meant with, with the, by saying that and how it doesn't apply anymore. Sure. I mean, I should say I graduated in 1992, so towards the tail end of the 20th century. And we were already in the midst of a bunch of changes, but I don't think those massive macroeconomic changes had really hit our consciousness until the 2000s and really in a lot of ways until after the financial crisis. But I think the the 20th century model that I was raised in, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing you might have also been raised in, was one in which, you know, broadly speaking, not for everybody, work was a place where the way you add value was told to you by the institution, by the Mm -hmm. strictures of that profession, by your bosses. And if you wanted a life driven by your own motivations, your own desires, your own skills, your own passions, there was a really easy way to do it. Be broke for your entire (laughs) life. And that was the choice that my parents made, for which I respect. They were artists. I grew up in an artist community. Everyone was an artist. And that I remember. I remember the, you know, McKinsey and other interviews going on at, at and as I was graduating college, I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to live my passion because you, it's money or it's passion. And I'm so thrilled that now, like I, I have a young son, I, I feel like he's going to grow up in a world where it's not just you get to do both. You have to do both increasingly, mm-hmm. not, in, not for everyone, but more and more. If you're not living your passion, you're going to find you're not making money either. So for people who are in, in, in the corporate world, who work in that environment, um, how, how does, and we'll get into some of the, the rules that you lay out in, in, in the book that, that, that pertain to uh, all of us in this, in this new economy, the passion economy, um, and dive deeper into what that means. But if someone who's in the, in a corporate job, help, help them understand how these rules apply to them and, and how they can thrive, um, and not be, <laughs> not, not be miserable. Sure. I'm, if, if it's okay, I want to give just a little bit of economic history because a lot of Please. the things I think about come from studying how our current economic system came together. So one thing is the very existence of a corporation is a very weird 
blip in human history, that mm. there really is almost no precedent for it. You could talk about maybe the Catholic Church, maybe Chinese bureaucracy um, that has existed for thousands of years, maybe military orders. But as a general rule, business has been conducted for almost all of human history by one or two or maybe five people. Um, you didn't have an a institution like General Motors or Amazon or whatever, where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are have their lives determined by a corporate hierarchy. And when that started, a lot of people say DuPont was really the first modern corporations. Um, the DuPont was started in 1802, but sort of restarted in 1902. That was the dawn of middle managers. There really wasn't middle managers in business beforehand because you. You just had the owner and then some mm -hmm. apprentices and maybe probably his kids, and that was it. And the very existence of middle managers is a new thing, and it's a byproduct of information flow. It's just really hard when you have a small group of kind of C-suite senior leaders deciding on strategy and then tens of thousands of people who have to execute. How does information flow through? And what you want if you think of the corporation as like a machine, um, I'm shopping for home air conditioning and heating equipment and you're reading all about efficiency. Is it 87% efficient, 93% efficient? You can think of the machine of the corporation as trying to get their energy star rating up, trying to get more and more and more efficient. It meant that you needed everybody to kind of do the same thing, to kind of fit into a box. And simply because of computer technology, information flows more richly, and because consumers just have access to so much more, um, the marketplace is changing in a way it, it did not change in the 20th century. The middle management position, in my view, is shifting from fair, a fairly standardized box, information in, information out, mm -hmm. I have to make sure this overall machinery that I don't control works, um, and the last thing you wanted was to say, well, I have my own unique way of doing things. No, you do it the GM way. You do <laughs> it the right. DuPont way. You do it the GE way. Well, now it's not that you have to be a radical person who refuses to do what your boss says, but if you're not able to articulate, here's my unique added value to this corporation. Here's the insights. Here's the abilities I uniquely bring. Then you are going to be, your bargaining power is very weak and you're going to be, um, you know, stuck and, and, and eventually dismissed. So I think much like for entrepreneurs, um, especially middle managers have to have a complete mind shift from how do I serve the company to how do I serve the company? You know, well, do you, is, is, me. is that because the company wants that or because I need that? That's a, that's a human need in this current economy. Well, I definitely think it's a human need. I think the, the nature of the 20th century corporation. Remember, this is a blip. <laughs> like I, I, I often think if you went back in time or you brought some people from the Middle Ages or ancient Mesopotamia to the modern world, of course they'd be freaked out by airplanes and iPhones <laughs> and all the, <laughs> but the corporation would probably be one of the most shocking things because the vast wow. majority of people who ever lived we're struggling every day for just enough calories to survive. And the idea that at 18 or 25 or whatever, you enter a company and then you're just, if you don't screw up too badly, you're sort of guaranteed more than enough resources for your entire life. Like that would blow people's mind. That never existed mm. before. 
Um, so yes, I think there's a deep human need to that that was suppressed in much of the 20th century. But also corporations, smart corporations, not all corporations. Yeah, you know, it, it, but smart corporations recognize that things that can be automated are going to be automated. Routine is going to be automated away or outsourced to a lower wage country. If I'm going to pay the wildly expensive um, cost of having, say, $150,000 a year or $300,000 a year middle manager in the United States, that person has to be bringing a million dollars in value or $1.5 million in value. And they can't just be a fungible commodity where I could just hire someone else and do the exact same job. Yeah, and, and I, I think two additional things are are if affecting that or impacting that. Right, one is customer customer demands are shifting so quickly that you can't just put something on the assembly line, have everybody you know in their boxes. You say, and okay, we're good for the next ten years. No, what you, what you're doing today might not be the product that the customer wants in six months. And so you've got to have the ability to to adapt pretty quickly. The other thing that's really interesting is what one of the things I think about, Adam, as you're describing this is, you know, in our work with organizations and it's true of, and we work with corporations. So what you're describing that the person from ancient times would be shocked to see. But but when we start asking employees and leaders in large corporations for what changes do you need in the culture? Like, how do we need to think and act differently Always, it doesn't matter the industry, it doesn't matter the location in the world that the company is located in, always on the list is we need less fear of speaking up. I want to be able to share my voice more. I want to be valued more. So your your claim that that's a basic human need right now, I, I certainly in just even the last few years have seen that grow exponentially. So it's it's absolutely a demand. So what might that I, you know, it's interesting. I've heard you say if you could rewrite the passion economy, which is awesome, and you, but you share a lot of good examples, incredible stories. You know, you've made your, your living as a, as a storyteller, and so you, you tell these stories of entrepreneurs. I've heard you say that if you could rewrite the book already, you'd put some more corporate examples in there, right? What, what would those stories look or sound like? Do you, do you have any that you, you already know, man, I'd want to talk about her or him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think of um, I think of myself <laughs> obnoxiously that I was at NPR and NPR had a very uh, structured way of doing things. And I came up with an idea for a new way of reporting on business. And, um, you know, you're talking, Bill, about Mo- you're talking about, you're talking about planet money, planet money. Yeah. exactly. And, and sort of built some alliances within the company because it was um, politically difficult at first. Um, I think of uh, uh, oftentimes it's in accounting and finance that there are people um, who are able to, you know, there's accounting compliance, which really you you don't want creativity. You really want to follow the rules and and make sure you don't get sued by the SEC. But then there's um, accountants who come up with insights into how can we suck information out of this data flow that we have and, and provide that um, information to managers to make better decisions. That for me is a huge area. Um, I also think another place you see it a lot these days is seeing marketing and sales and engineering integrating much, much more where you don't have, um, and, and 
I think when you see marketers who are able, let me step back a second. I think all of this is about information flow. At the end mm-hmm. of the day, that is the massive change that if, if you picture whoever was running, you know, Alfred P. Sloan running General Motors in 1936 or something, all the information was written by hand by someone or maybe typed and brought to him and he read it and he had to communicate to somebody and they had to go out and execute. And the bandwidth of information coming in and going out was, was fairly narrow. And the same, of course, would be for every single middle manager. Now, of course, we have access to far too much data, an unimaginable amount of data, and having insights into how do I learn from that? How do I apply that? And then how do I communicate that to a large number of people? Those are the key tools that, in my mind, are transforming the corporation. You could add to that global trade, outsourcing, but in a sense, those also are just information flow Mm -hmm. things, because now we're not just selling in the greater... you know, greater South Michigan area, we're selling to the entire world and learning from the entire world. So when you think of the most successful companies these days, Google, Amazon, I mean, these are just information processing machines that um, process information, not just about the customer, but also about internal processes. And so having an ability and insight into that, I've seen it happen in human resources, the people analytics group at Google is a great example of, of that. Um, they have now gone and created their own company, Humu. But <clears throat> that kind of internal entrepreneurship, which doesn't necessarily mean creating a new division that's going to create a new product. It can just mean anticipating needs that your bosses don't even realize and, and providing solutions. It's tricky and not every company is open to it. Um, I often suggest to people, if your company is not open to it, you might want to go to a company that is. Interesting. I, I, I'd like to hear, and maybe, maybe it's just a minute or two, Adam, but it, I'm, I, you're making me wonder now if your experience launching, I mean, Planet Money is, you, you, you mentioned that briefly, but it's, it's a, it's been a huge hit. I mean, consistently top five business podcasts. It's, it's, it, it's done remarkably, remarkably well. That was, you, you co-founded and, and, and were one of the hosts for, for many years. Um, it, was that part of what drove you to think about the passion economy? Like, wait, I, I want to go do that. And can you tell a little bit more about that story? Because I think for for those who who are listening, who work in, in, in the corporate world, you you could be you actually could be a pretty good example. Yeah, I, I, I love talking about it. I mean, you know, it might not come as a total shock that National Public Radio, which is great in a million ways, is a, you know, it's a hidebound bureaucratic institution. It's a nonprofit, which generally nonprofits are fairly conservative and how in, in turn, I, I mean, small c conservative business processes, <laughs> not politically conservative. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very averse to change. So, you know, NPR and 2005 was not that different from NPR in 1995. Um, I did, you know, I was a reporter, I was an economics reporter, and I had, you know, an insight or a thought or a guess that, um, and, and it was actually rooted in what we're talking about, that the economy was changing in all sorts of ways. People were overwhelmed and confused. They were scared. They were concerned. This today sounds trite and obvious. I, mm-hmm. In 2005, 2006, when we were in that grand expansion that turned out to be a bubble, this counted as an insight. That, um, and, um, 
and that the way we were telling people about the economy just wasn't scratching the itch people had, just hearing how the stock market performed yesterday or what was happening with Fed funds rates was not interesting to people. It wasn't helping them understand the big picture. And so I had this idea that we can tell about the economy in a more narrative way and that podcasting, which was brand new at the time, could was going to break up how our relationship to listeners, that NPR was a broadcaster, you know, creating content that was sent to local stations that was then sent to listeners. And so we had to create something that worked in, you know, for 25-year-olds in San Francisco and 80-year-olds in Alabama. And that creates a kind of blandness, if I can say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, um, you know, NPR is often <laughs> a little bit teased for being <laughs> on the dull side. And so I felt like podcasting, where you're going directly to the listener, a small smaller audience is going to be more economically relevant because they're taking an active choice to consume your product. You can be spikier, you can be sharper, you can be more focused on specific people's needs. So I'm not saying I'm a genius. That's literally the only original insight I've had in my life. But um, <laughs> but like a lot, I think a lot of people where they work, they have some thought about, oh, you know, we're a hospital, but we're not serving this community well or whatever. I mean, I think lots of people have that experience. Um, I had to build uh, an alliance, which was not easy. I had to build support and it took several years to build support, you know, with not everybody, but enough senior leadership to have protection because like any change, it meant there were people, I was grabbing resources from other departments and mm -hmm. NPR doesn't have a lot of money. It was not easy to do. And, and the precious resource is great reporting talent. And I was really attracting some of the best. And that meant they weren't doing stuff for other people. Um, it was tough. It was really, really, really tough. I mean, it was really fun on, to create the show. And it had an immediate and huge audience and has just grown and grown. And I'm so proud of it. But in most of my memories of that time were just having arguments, bureaucratic arguments. and. Why didn't you give what? up? Were there moments, Adam, when you were thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> like, this is oh. not going the way. Did you think about, I, I should just abandon this? Yes, yes. And many then times. how did you, because I think, I actually think this is a, an incredible story and there are so many people who can relate. And, yeah. and so what drove you to not throw in the towel when you were in those, as you call them, arguments? So, so a few things that... Um, my boss at the time was awesome, Ellen Weiss, um, kept me very small. And I really had to earn every bit of growth. So at first it was just me and just me part-time. Then it was me and one other person part-time. Then we grew, and it drove me nuts, of course. I wanted her to just give me $10 million and let me go nuts. <laughs> but by being by having our ability proven before the big money asks, um, where the it, it it that was an, an enormous help, and I do highly mm. recommend that to people is is um, is is keep the ask small. Something that took me a while to learn because I used to go down. I was in New York, and the headquarters was in D.C., and I'd like burst through an office saying, "I'm about to revolutionize the entire industry." <laughs> that never works, and I came up with a rule, which is the bigger the thing you want to do downplay it the most possible. Like, really? oh, we're doing it exactly how everyone does it, just this small tweak. And by the time they realize what you're doing is radical, you've already done it. 
Interesting. And, so don't let them on. Don't draw attention to yourself. Yeah. Don't draw attention. Okay. Just like, oh, this is a little tweak. It's not a big deal. The other thing is not look for 100% consensus because you're just not going to have it. Mm-hmm. So um, I lost friends. I really did. There are people to this day who hate my guts and a few people whose guts I kind of hate. And um, <laughs> and that's okay. Like, I feel like if I had, you know, and, and there were times I probably had 20% consensus, but it was the right 20%. Eventually through success, um, you know, even the people who don't like you can't really argue against you, but that took a while. And then I did pick some real fights. There are fights I didn't pick, but there are some fights I did pick. And I think having that kind of passionate, there were times, for example, where they wanted me to take on a personality to host the show who just had the wrong feel. And those were fights I would fight to the death. But when there were, because I felt like that would destroy the essence. But there were other, but but then I knew I had to give up as many fights as possible. And then I feel like in this interview, I'm coming across as more arrogant than I no, actually am. No, not, not, no, no one listening or, or watching is feeling that, Adam. Okay. They're, actually, they're, actually, they're actually thinking, oh my gosh, I have ideas and I, and I, and, and people aren't listening and I'm in these arguments. And w- the reason there's so much fear and so many, the, the reason so many cultures say what I said earlier about there's no, we have fear of speaking up and people don't seem to respect our opinion is because I've raised my hand with an idea before and it was slapped. And so I, I, I've got the message. And so I want to do what you're advocating in the book and in your new podcast and in this interview of, I want to pursue my passion, but holy cow, I face all this resistance. And so your, your story actually, um, needs to be told. Yeah. And it, and and it takes time. I mean, it, for me, like I started in 2005, we didn't launch till 2008. I remember sometime in 2009, it might've been 2010. We finally got our own code in the budgeting system. So like I could just order a computer or Mm -hmm. book travel and didn't have to go through three middle managers who didn't want me to do it. Um, but being, Touting success, like really making sure people knew what, when, like, it, it's kind of both. Like when I'm announcing, I want to try something. That's the like, oh, by the way, this is no big deal, but I'm going to just do this small little mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But then once that small little thing works, like really hammering home that it worked. And yeah. um, NPR is not a peacock culture. And I kind of had to I, uh, peacock a little bit to yeah. make people. Um, I did eventually, it took a while, but I eventually reached a point where I felt like we're pretty bulletproof because we really had proved the model. Um, but, and then that was, that was sort of fun. The other big thing for me eventually was having options. So um, we, we did have conversations with other media outlets about bringing Planet Money to them. And we never did, obviously, but just, Knowing we had options, now that that's a tough move. That was only once I felt pretty bulletproof. I was going to say was, that obviously was intentional yeah. and kind of Plan B, right? It was Plan B, and it was very deliberate. Um, it, it, it was a period when NPR was going through just great. In ten years, they had ten CEOs. I mean, five full time, five interim. It was insane, and um, and so there were times where there were like really ridiculous political battles. And I just wanted to make clear I've 
I've got options. I don't need you. Mm-hmm. You need me more than I need you, which wasn't actually true, but I was able to create the fear <laughs> that it was true. But that's a tricky one. You don't want to pull that yeah. one out too quickly that, hey, I might bring this whole thing to the comp- competition. Yeah. I think that did, by the way, happen with The Daily at The New York Times, which is the most popular podcast maybe in history. Um, that was an NPR idea. Young NPR producer, Theo Balcom, was pitching it and pitching it, and they, no one would listen. And so finally she said, forget it. I'm going to The Times. Hmm. And which became uh, that what that was their first big podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and it saved the company. It's a huge, yeah. huge event. And, and led to so many yeah. led to so many additional podcasts. Really got the New York Times converted to that that format. Well, yeah. I, I I could talk to you about this for hours, but I got to respect your time. It, it, what I love about in the in the book is you give examples, stories again of people who've done this. Really, the book is mostly full of entrepreneurial stories. But and the podcast you can listen to the, the the podcast that has the same name as the book, right? Which is the Passion Economy, and but I, I also so I love hearing those because there are rules and tips, and I love the Snickers or Ocho's story. I'm a huge Snickers fan, and 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 and, and some of the guidance you give about um, doing something that's not too scalable and. And picking the market, all these things are, are super, super valuable. So I recommend that to anybody who wants to read about the entrepreneurial stories and the rules that really apply today. And then I think also, Adam, in this interview, in this in this show, I think you I, I think you brought a ton of value to those who work in the corporate world going, okay, I acknowledge all that's happening out there. And I probably have some friends that are have done really well for themselves as entrepreneurs. But I'm not sure how to do that in my current environment. I think you've I think you've helped us a ton. So, um, Adam, if someone's interested in getting a hold of you, whether it's uh, find you know uh, reading more of your stuff or um, actually talking to to you about how this might apply in their organization, how would they do that? How would they get a hold of you? Sure. So, passioneconomy.com gets. Uh, the podcast um, and, and a link to the book. Also, I'm Adam at passioneconomy.com. Um, all the stuff I've ever written is at adamdavidson.com. Okay. Awesome. It's, it was a yeah. great pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much. Yeah, for this time. Was, was a joy. Thanks. Hey everyone, a couple of quick things. First, you can watch the interview you just listened to. Yeah, the link to watch it on YouTube is in the show notes in whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. You might want to forward that link to friends or colleagues that would find it useful as well. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, just tap on that subscribe button. You'll get two new great episodes each week. And finally, I want to invite you to our private Facebook group. I spend time there in between the episodes. It's for leaders like us. You can access it by going to theculturehacks.com.